In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp hours with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Keter. Too long have I had my dwelling place among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Good morning. It is, it is wonderful to be back here at West Valley with you beloved saints. Uh, I really is a wonderful thing, um, especially since you're so close. I don't have to travel all that far to be able to spend time with you. Uh, I want to say thank you first to Mark and to your session uh, for the privilege of your pulpit this morning. Uh, thank you. It's a privilege to be here and to preach God's word with you this morning. So let us first go into prayer. And then we will dive into our text this morning. Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, we give to you thanks this morning, Lord, for gathering us together for the worship of your name and for the illumination of your word to our hearts and to our minds. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would make use of your word preached, that your people would benefit from it, that your spirit would make use of this meager work to give us as your people the spiritual food which we so desperately need. You tell us in your word that man cannot live by bread alone, but that we live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your breathed-out scripture to live by, to nourish us. I ask that the preached word would be to the nourishment of our souls and to the instruction of our lives. These things we ask in the name of our blessed and wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we are just coming out of a holiday season of Thanksgiving, of Christmas, of New Year's, and perhaps many of us over the course of that season had over the course of that season have found cause to travel from one place to another. And in the long history of the world, human beings have always found many different reasons to travel from one place to another. In our modern age, we travel for things like medical treatment for duties related to our employment, to see extended families, of course, and family reunions for holidays, for Thanksgiving, for Memorial Day, for Christmas, for New Year's, and a new phenomenon in the past couple of centuries that wasn't all that frequent in centuries gone by was we travel for a vacation, to take rest, to take a little bit of ease from our daily working life. But of all the reasons one might travel, our text today, found in Psalm 120, speaks to an additional reason, and it speaks to the reason of pilgrimage. In fact, in the Old Testament period, God required his people to appear before him three times a year to pilgrimage to the tabernacle of the Lord that traveled with God's wandering people and later was located at Shiloh and then finally located at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. We find in Exodus 23, 14 to 17, the cause of this pilgrimage in the Old Testament. Moses there writes, three times in the year, you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of the unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days and at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. 
You shall keep the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year you shall make all your males appear before the Lord your God. In principle, all males in ancient Israel were required to pilgrimage to Jerusalem to the house of the Lord to present themselves and their sacrifice to God. We see pilgrimages in the New Testament. Jesus, for example, is asked in John 7 whether he intends to go up to Jerusalem to the Festival of Booths, or what Moses called the Feast of the Ingathering. And Jesus initially says that he will not go up publicly, but later he goes up privately to Jerusalem as to avoid a spectacle as he ascends to the temple of the Lord. And it is in regards to these feasts, to these pilgrimages, that give us the overall context this morning of Psalm 120, and of the 14 psalms that follow after it. Don't panic, I'm not preaching on all of them, just this one. They are what are called the psalms of ascent. These 15 psalms have historically been understood to have been related to the songs that these pilgrims going up to Jerusalem would sing as they journeyed to the house of God to celebrate these pilgrim feasts with God's people. And in our text this morning, the psalmist, our pilgrim, begins his journey in quite a lamentable state. He finds himself the victim of lies, of deception, the victim of a warlike and violent people with whom, for one reason or another, he's been obliged to live near and among. And it is in the midst of these troubles, at the start of his journey, that he calls out to his God for deliverance. As he journeys to join together with God's people for worship, he details to God his complaints, and he assures us of the fact that God hears him. It is a message that is most applicable to the church today, as she finds herself amidst a fallen world and amidst a foreign people, and yet she is sojourning on pilgrimage through this fallen world to the heavenly Zion of God. In our times of distress, as the New Testament people of God, corporately or individually, though we might find ourselves far off, in a far off country, we can always, always cry out to our God. Like the pilgrim does here in our text, the Lord God, the Lord Yahweh, has promised that he both hears us and that he will deliver us. And our God does so. He indeed delivers us both in the here and now, in this life, God delivers his people, but also, in the most important, ultimate, and lasting sense, God delivers his people in the specific context of eternity. Beginning with verse 1, a song of ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Again, this is the first of the 15 songs of degrees or psalms of ascent depending on what translation you might be using. And similar to how we who who are from Philadelphia might say, when we're going down to the beach, we go down to the shore. In the ancient world, everyone colloquially understood that when one went to the city of Jerusalem, they went up to the city of Jerusalem. They went up to the Mount of Jerusalem. They ascended up to the city of the people of God that housed the temple of the Lord. And hence why may have been translated that way, that as one is ascending up to Jerusalem, up to the house of God, one sings these psalms, these songs of ascent. 
And for this first song of ascent, our pilgrim declares to us, in my distress, I cried unto the Lord. Our pilgrim will tell us the nature of his distress in a moment, but in the meantime, we ought to reflect on something first, specifically the behavior of our pilgrim in his distress. What does he do when he finds himself distressed? He cried unto the Lord, to God, the God of Israel, who in the very next psalm, Psalm 121, tells us he neither slumbers nor sleeps. Scripture generally instructs us in our behavior in one of two ways. First, the way Scripture instructs us on how we are to behave is to respond to an imperative, to a command statement that Scripture gives us. For example, thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not lie. Scripture gives us these explicit commands, do not do this or you are to do that. We've seen a positive example in Micah 6.8. The Lord has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But that you do justly, that you love kindness, and that you walk humbly with your God. These are examples of explicit commands in Scripture to God's people that what they are to do or what not to do. And the second way, Scripture generally instructs us on how to please God, how to show our love toward God with our actions, is to demonstrate a proper Christian response to what is called the indicative. Simply put, Scripture gives us examples of what we ought to do. Now, not every case of the indicative or of narrative text or of story in Scripture or what we might call um, uh, stories uh, are meant or implied to be examples we ought to follow. In fact, the opposite is often the case where Scripture shows us the actions of others with the implication that these are things we ought not to do. The incident with Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus, for example, choosing for themselves how to worship God with strange fire rather than letting God dictate how he's to be worshipped jumps to mind that that story is an example of how we are not to worship God. We are not to take to ourselves uh, the dictates of worship. However, in this case, in the case of our pilgrim, our pilgrim is demonstrating to us in the indicative what we ought to do when we, when you, when we as God's people are likewise beset by distress. We are to cry out to our God. Like our pilgrim, when faced with the all too common distresses of this life, we are to cry out to our Lord, to our Savior, to our Jesus. And here is the part I really find amazing. Not only does our pilgrim cry out to God, the God of the universe in his distress, our pilgrim tells us that after he has cried out, he says, and my God heard me. Brothers and sisters, let us not think that our prayers, our calls, our cries, our weeping, our desperate pleas fall on deaf ears. They do not. The God who created all things, the God who rules high above in the heavens, he hears you. He hears when you, his people, call out to him. Your prayers travel that far. The Apostle John seeks to encourage us in this, in his first epistle, for example, when he says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It is certainly the will of God for his flock, the sheep of his pasture, to come to him, our Lord, Jesus exhorted us to do so. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Are you laboring and weighed down by the troubles, by the trials, by the upsets of this life, even to the point where it causes you distress? Cry out to God. Cry out to the God who did not withhold his only son from death for your own sake. Know that he who died for your sins, who rose again from the dead and is now ruling and reigning in power on high, know that this one, this Jesus, hears you. Whatever else you learn, whatever else we learn from our pilgrim's distress in verses 2 to 7, know that your God hears you. And he has promised to us by the prophet Isaiah, it shall come to pass that before they call, I, that is the Lord, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. This is the ultimate promise of God forevermore to you, Christian, here and now and in eternity. But on to verse 2. What is the nature of our pilgrim's distress? He tells us, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. We are sort of cued in here in verse 2 of the nature of our pilgrim's cry and the nature of what is distressing him. First, the nature of the pilgrim's cry is he is crying out for deliverance. He wants to be delivered from his distress, so he cries out, Deliver my soul, O Lord. And in this case, specifically, from those who are perpetrating false witness against him. Those he is associated with in some way are lying and deceiving their way about and around him, and it is causing him an incredible period of distress, hence his cry to the Lord. I love what Charles Spurgeon comments on this verse. He says, the author has been grievously calumated. I had to look that one up. Um, The author has been grievously calumated and had been tortured into bitterness by false charges of his persecutors. And here is his appeal to the great arbiter of right and wrong, before whose judgment seat no man shall suffer from slanderous tongues. The horrible reality of when we as human beings turn our words into weapons of deceit is that it can be difficult to disprove the lies of our persecutors. And this is precisely Spurgeon's and the Pilgrim's point. If you have been slandered, the whole world may believe it and your reputation may suffer horrendously for it. But the God, the encouragement we have is that the God who is over all things, who sees all things, who hears all things, and who knows all things, is not himself deceived. Knowing this, the pilgrim, our pilgrim, cries out for vindication, for deliverance. And it is right that we, like our pilgrim, cry out to our God for such deliverance in such distress. The psalmist in Psalm 68 reminds us, our God is a God of salvation. And to Jehovah the Lord belong deliverances from death But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. And again in Psalm 74, Yet God is my king from of old, who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. God delivers his people. This is why Jesus came, to cleanse us from sin, to set at liberty the captives, to deliver us unto himself as his particular people, to whom he has given the right and the title to be called children of God. God delivers his people. But this begs a little bit of a question. What does deliverance look like? 
What should we expect to see when we say that God delivers his people? And the answer to that question, we turn to verse 3 and 4. Verse 3, what shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree? The psalmist is praying what is called an imprecation here, praying for judgment against this lying and deceitful tongue, which are representative of those persons who are lying, using lying and deceit as a weapon to otherwise slander and defraud our pilgrim. In short, they are seeking to bring harm to their neighbor through their words. The pilgrim starts with a bit of a rhetorical question in verse 3. You've caused me this immense distress with your lying. What ought to happen to you? One commentator notes that the pilgrim seems almost at a loss to devise an appropriate response and punishment for the incredible damage that breaking the ninth commandment, that lying can wreak and has wreaked on our pilgrims' lives and the lives of people, more broadly speaking. Well, in verse 4, our pilgrim tells us what he imagines might be a fitting punishment to this. Sharp arrows of the mighty. In short, I hope you get I hope you get shot in the tongue with a piercing arrow, just as the words you sent forth from your tongue pierced others with your deceit. Just as they pierced others with your deceit, I hope they return to your own tongue and pierce it. Sharp arrowhead decimating a tongue. This is what the pilgrim is hoping for as immediate justice, immediate uh, rectification of what has been done against him. The tongue that has caused him such distress, such pain, such anguish, the words of others that have pierced our pilgrim. He hopes that God's deliverance includes an earthly, practical, physical judgment, physical consequences for the harm done. And next, the coals of the broom tree, or the coals of the juniper, again, depending on your translation. I hope your tongue burns in the hottest fires. Just as your tongue lit fires with its lies, I hope your tongue burns long and deeply without relief. I have to admit, this one, this comment about the broom tree or the juniper tree is particularly ingenious um, because what we have here is, again, archaeologically speaking, probably close to what is called the Palestinian white broom tree. And in the ancient world, the wood and the roots of the broom tree were highly, highly desired to make charcoal because of the particular properties this tree possesses. When used for making a fire, the charcoals of the white broom tree burn hotter and for longer periods of time than any other comparative tree or charcoal in the region. Our pilgrim knows his botany. The pilgrim thought of the hottest, most enduring fiery object that, could bring, that he could bring to mind and said, I hope this is what God uses to punish you for your lies. And this judgment comes in two forms. Again, in, in immediate form with the arrow and everlasting with the broom tree. Judgment here in this life, an eternal judgment meted out over the course of eternity that is to come. That is what is on the mind of our pilgrim as he thinks about how he's been wronged and sinned against. The brother of our Lord, James, seems to agree in his letter here when he says in James 3, Even so, the tongue is a little member, but it boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Righteous judgment against a lying and deceitful tongue is what James is promising and is what our pilgrim is hoping for. 
And that is why we must take care. Setting aside for just a moment, we must take care with how we talk and what we say. We as Christians ought to speak purposefully, deliberately, because even though Jesus has washed us clean from our unrighteousness, we must not allow our tongue to drag us into sinning against others or of grieving our Father in heaven. But Dominic, you might say, this verse, this verse is talking about judgment, and you are emphasizing judgment, but where is this discussion of deliverance that you were talking about? I thought the title in the outline said, The Hoped for Deliverance. What about that? How does this verse speak to God delivering his people who he hears? We see it here in two ways. First, the first way perhaps we see God's deliverance in these circumstances is immediately, temporally, in this life, in the here and now. God, by either miraculous or the ordinary, does work in the world for the good and for the benefit of his people. The second way we see it is in the eternity that is to come. And this distinction is important because ultimately, our God delivers his people in a context of eternity. God can and does deliver his people from, the here, uh, from their troubles in the here and now, temporally, as well as ultimately in eternity by giving them his son, and through his son, eternal life. In the here and now, sometimes God delivers us from our distress, from liars, from deceivers. This is certainly part of the Apostle Paul's testimony. In fact, he boasts about it in his second letter to Timothy. Paul there in 2 Timothy says, You, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my life, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my sufferings that all happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all, from them all, the Lord rescued me. Paul's testimony is that God delivered him, often miraculously, from trials and from distresses in space and time, in the here and now, temporally. And Paul never had any trouble again. If you know your Bible, you know that is not the case. God continually delivered Paul until Paul found himself on an executioner's block in the city of Rome, where a Roman executioner took a sword and separated Paul's head from the rest of his body. Did God fail to deliver Paul? Does God fail to deliver his people? No, of course not. God may not have kept Paul from a Roman executioner's sword, but the moment, the very moment Paul's eyes were closed by his earthly executioner, they were opened by his Savior and by our Savior. Jesus Christ in eternity and into the presence of his Savior with Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant, welcome to the joy of your Lord. And Paul's deliverance to eternity in heaven with his Savior was met with the shouts of joy and love from those same Christians that Paul had persecuted so many decades earlier. Paul, you see, was delivered from the Roman executioner's sword years, perhaps even decades before when on the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus struck him from his horse, struck him blind, and guided him to salvation by grace through faith at the hands of Ananias of Antioch. The moment Paul entered into salvation by Christ, he had entered into eternal life, and the Lord delivered Paul forevermore from persecutions and trials and even death 
Because even in death, it is only a conveyance that God uses to bring us, in this case, to bring Paul from this life into the bosom of his Savior in the next. The same conveyance the Lord will use to ferry each and every one of us to himself should he tarry in his return. So, my brothers and sisters, know that when you cry out to the Lord, know that he hears you and that he's already committed to you the hoped-for deliverance of eternal life. God delivers his people, ultimately in a context of eternity, and whether things go according to our plans in the here and now or not, whether God delivers us immediately from our earthly trials or allows us to experience the hardship of them, to feel the sting of lack, of loss, of frustration, and of withholding. If we know Jesus, you've already been delivered. We who live in this state of spiritual war on this earth, confronted by the enemy's probes, his forays, and attacks on our health, on our prosperity, on our mental and emotional well-being, can often feel as if we are alone and as if we are dragging on and on and on, just trying to get through the day, the week, the month, the year. I want you to know that Jesus has already delivered you and given you eternal life. He dwells with you and in you, and you are never alone. You are never abandoned to these things. His Holy Spirit dwells with you and in you. He who loved you from the first, from eternity past, and has never stopped loving you, will bring you through your earthly trials. Through the last, though they last for weeks, for months, for years, or decades at a time, his love for you and your joyous eternity spent with him will last all the longer still. I want you to take comfort in this, my dear friends. Know that Jesus loves you and is with you. Finally, moving into the last section of verses, we come to verses 5 through 7. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling place among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Remember that it, it is this, that this is a psalm of ascent. The pilgrim shows us where his journey is beginning, from where he has cried out for deliverance and from how far off God has heard him. He says again, verse 5, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. The people of Meshech uh, the, are the peoples today of modern-day Syria and Turkey, and in ancient times, this region was ruled by a nation known as the Hittites, and then later the Assyrians. And these peoples were constantly harassing and oppressing the people of Israel. The peoples of Kedar, the Kedarites, are what we would likely call modern-day nomadic Bedouin tribesmen, living in modern-day Jordan and Arabia. These were a warlike people, constantly fighting, constantly at each other's throats, going armed to the teeth, constantly battling over what little, precious little, water and grazing land there was available. And in fact, this was the case even into the 20th century. Um, one of my heroes, Lawrence of Arabia, writes about their tribalistic style of warfare amongst each other, and which he put to use to fight the Axis powers in World War I. This is the context our pilgrim finds himself in. 
as he begins the journey toward Israel, towards Jerusalem, towards the temple of God, until the celebration of God with God's people. He finds himself in the midst of a polytheistic, belligerent, oppressive, pagan people. Incidentally, this is similar to where the church finds herself today. We, as the people of God, are inhabiting a fallen world, inhabited by those who are in active rebellion against the Creator. As such, were some of us, lest we think too highly of ourselves. But God washed us, He cleansed us, and saved us by the blood of the Lamb. And now, like our pilgrim for the feasts of God, we as the church are sojourning. We are pilgrimaging. We are gathering together to travel to that eternal city of Zion, the heavenly Zion. And we are, as we begin our pilgrimage as the church in this life, in this far-off country, journeying to our heavenly home. And we can relate to the pilgrim in this way. Verse 6, too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. Our pilgrim is tired. He is exhausted from having to dwell in the far-off country among a foreign and violent people amidst human sinfulness and depravity. And like our exhausted pilgrim, we are longing to be brought over that Jordan to the habitation of the holy, of the people of God, away from those who hate peace, away from sin, away to the eternal dwelling place of our God where he dwells with his people. We long for that eternal Pax Dei, the eternal peace of God. We long to hear that declaration from God's throne in Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. It is understandable and it is expected that we as the church would long for the ultimate deliverance in the midst of suffering from war weariness in this fallen world. This fallen world where we suffer from attacks by our satanic enemy and his demonic hosts who lay siege to and assault the church of God day in and day out, yet knowing, doing this yet knowing that they will never avail against it. Where we are assailed by our own fallen, sinful human nature and the fallen, sinful human nature of our fellow human beings made in the Creator's image but whose nature is yet depraved and is warped by sin. But the Apostle Paul encourages us in this. He says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. When we grow tired and weary of the distresses of this world, we ought to do as our pilgrim does. We ought to call out to our God, to our Christ Jesus, to our Savior, and trust in what he has done on our behalf. Believe and hope on what he has said in his word, and know that he has given us his Holy Spirit to dwell in us richly. And this is important for the mission that we encounter here in verse 7. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The pilgrim finds himself unable to speak with his bellicose neighbors without his bellicose neighbors, threatening violence at the mere presence of his words. This is something else that the church can relate to in this day and age, and we will likely relate to it all the more as we step further and further into the days to come, where Christendom can no longer be assumed 
to be the dominant way of thinking in our society, the dominant mode of mind and life. We are called to speak. We are called to preach the hope for deliverance of the gospel of salvation to our neighbors, to our friends, to our coworkers, to our loved ones. We're called to speak these words of peace of Christ. We are called to tell our pagan, ungodly, rebellious neighbors to repent of their sins and to be baptized into the saving faith. We are called to present to them the gospel that was presented to us, that brought us from death into life. Because as they are, we were, and our Savior has called upon us to be faithful in that proclamation of salvation. That good news that Jesus himself came to proclaim, the acceptable year of the Lord and the freeing of the captives, as the church in this fallen world, we are in a far country, dwelling amidst the people of Meshech and near the tribes of Kedar. And it has so often been, and even now is the case, that when we speak, when we present the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of Christ alone, that we are met with retort and sometimes violent retort. That when we speak of the peace that God offers, the fallen world speaks of war and of rebellion against their creator by their worship of self, other, or something else. Jesus said we should expect as much. He said, remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. But this, again, thankfully, is not the final word. Jesus also said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I, Jesus, have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the warlike nations of Meshech. He will crush the belligerent tribes of the Keterites. He will deliver you on your pilgrim journey safely over the Jordan and into the heavenly Zion. So this week, this week as you sojourn through a foreign land, amidst the deceits, the falsehoods, the conflicts, the oppressions, and the distresses of this life on the long pilgrimage toward our heavenly home, toward our heavenly Zion, cry out to our Lord Jesus. Know that our God hears his people. He hears his people and he delivers them. He has delivered his people already and he's done so in the context of eternity. And the distresses you are now encountering are not the final word. Know that he has heard you and that even now he hears you in your deepest laments of your soul. Know that he has delivered you by the cross and by his spirit and he has rendered unto you that hoped for deliverance. That hope for deliverance of eternal life bought by the blood of Jesus, our Savior, applied to you as the declared sons and daughters of the Most High God, which title and status can never be snatched away from you. You can never be snatched away from him, not even by yourself. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will not only deliver you, but in those wonderful words of Horatius Bonner, I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Lay down my weary soul, lay down thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, so weary, worn, and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he 
has made me glad. Amen. He will deliver you from all your troubles and into his own loving arms, where we as God's people will deliver, will dwell for the rest of eternity, a resting place to make us glad. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness. We thank you that you have not abandoned us in this world, but that you have called us to yourself, that you have delivered us from all our oppressions, all our distresses. I pray that as we go out this week, you would be our hope, that we would cry out to you and know that you hear us. We thank you for your deliverance, O Lord, and I pray that we would glorify your holy name. We ask these things in your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.